Well, as Phil said earlier, we're in a bit of a um, message series, um, which is entitled, What Would Jesus Undo? Because what we should stop doing is just as important as what we should start doing, right? So those many of you would have owned, I definitely as a kid and as a teenager, a multicoloured band, and some people, you know, have had it um, inscribed permanently on their body or they wear a chain or whatever that says WWJD, what would Jesus do? Um, but we're actually looking at what would Jesus undo? What are the things that Jesus addresses that we read in Scripture where he says, this just isn't good enough or this just isn't my way? And so last week, Phil um, shared with us a bit about the concept of indifference, of apathy, of, of, of lukewarmness. And um, this morning, we're going to... Oh, so go back and check that out if you haven't already. It's, on, it's online. But this morning, we're looking at something else that Jesus would undo. But I want to first of all tell you, if you don't know me, a little bit about what I love to do when I gift give. So I'm not hugely wealthy. I can't generally afford amazingly big gifts. But I love gifts to look nice. So I love to wrap a gift, and some of you have even laughed at me in this congregation when I've given an, a gift, because sometimes when I give a gift card, or all the time when I give a gift card, I like to wrap the gift card separately to the card, you know, like, so wrap it in paper and put a bow on it and make a gift look really good. When I'm searching for a gift, something that I'll definitely keep in mind is whether that gift is going to look nice wrapped. Who's with me? You know, like, if something comes in a box, yeah, so Phil and I, we're the only lazy ones. If something comes in a nice square box, that's always the perfect gift, you know, because it's just nice and easy to wrap. If something's a bit tricky or a little bit small, I might put it in a bigger box so that it's, you know, looks good wrapped. The outside of the gift to me is just so important. But I wonder what would happen if one day I gave you or one of my kids or especially my husband a gift where the box was beautifully wrapped and it had the nicest paper and a beautiful bow on it. But imagine if it was to open up and actually there was nothing inside. How do you think he'd feel? How do you think you'd feel? Been there, done that. Someone's received one before. I did read a story this week about someone who um, wanted to um, set the present for their family that Christmas was to send their kids to Disneyland. Like they were planning a trip to Disneyland. So instead of like any Christmas stuff, they just had this one big box that he wrapped up and inside was supposed to have a piece of paper saying, we're going to Disneyland, but he forgot to put the piece of paper in. So he really did unwrap it and there's nothing inside. So that's a bit of a bummer. But anyway... Imagine if I was to do that, like it's almost unthinkable to give someone a gift that looks amazing but there's nothing inside. But I wonder whether you want to think for a moment, think about what if the songs that we sing, what if the words that we speak, what if the acts of service that we do come across to God as empty gifts? What if our lives are wrapped up with a spiritual image on the outside where it looks like we're doing all the right things but actually inside our hearts are far from God? What if we're offering to God, ultimately, an empty gift, an empty box? What would Jesus undo? Jesus tells us in his word, and we just heard it before, that he would undo hollow worship or empty worship or worship that is in vain. We're looking today, as Lynn read, at Matthew chapter, 24, um, Matthew chapter 15, and we heard it earlier. It's a very interesting conversation, right? This, this conversation between the Pharisees and between Jesus. It says, Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. 
why don't they wash their hands before they eat? Now, this sermon is not to tell you, don't wash your hands before you eat. In fact, today, before any day in history before, it's very important to wash your hands before you eat. And I did confess I was a little bit lax as a parent. If you read the messenger comment that you emailed or got at the door, um, you would read that I did become a little bit lax with my um, parenting and my kids would complain when they went to their grandparents' house because they were made to wash their hands before every single meal. Imagine it. Um, But I do like to be clean. Don't get me wrong. I do like to be physically clean. I always have at least two showers, sometimes three showers a day. I know, it's way too much. I have short ones. But you know, like when you exercise, you need a shower. Before you go to bed, you need a shower. When you get up, you need a shower. So there's three showers. It comes easily for those who are wondering. But but the Jews weren't actually caring at all about physical cleanliness. They weren't obsessed with that. They were obsessed with what they referred to as ceremonial cleanliness. For, For the Jews... There were two categories for everything. Everything was either clean or unclean. So um, there were clean animals and there were unclean animals. If you touch a pig, you're definitely unclean. There's clean ways to prepare your food and unclean ways. There are things to touch that are clean and there are other things that are, are unclean. If you have any type of bodily discharge, I can't put it any other way, sorry about that, you're unclean. If you have a skin problem, you're unclean. And the problem with being unclean is that when you were unclean, that uncleanliness was contagious. So just think about it in your house. We've got a cockroach problem in my house here. It's all on the table today. Um, The the, the flick people were supposed to come this week, but it was raining and they couldn't do outside. So we thought, oh, we'll put it off again. But there's still cockroaches there, of course, because it hasn't been dealt with. But anyway, if a cockroach who's unclean was to touch a cup that cup would then be unclean. And then if I was to touch that cup, I would be unclean. If Phil was to then touch me, he would be unclean. And therefore, none of us would be fit for worship. That was what they thought. So what did you have to do? If you're unclean, you had to go through this elaborate ceremony to make yourself clean. In other words, that's what everyone had to do because everyone got unclean. You know what I mean? And it was very elaborate. What you had to do was take a certain amount of water, I'm not making this up, known as a quarter of a log. And a quarter of a log is equivalent to an eggshell and a half. So an eggshell and a half worth of water is all you need to be clean. Our water bills would be heaps less. That would be helpful. Um, Then what you would do is, so someone would put that water on your hands, but you'd have to take your hands and put them way out. Because you see, who's washed their hands before? and the water's drained down their, like, their arms or washed their hands and it's dropped onto the floor. Well, actually, wherever the water went, it became unclean and it would make you unclean again if it touched you. So they'd have to put their hands out and someone else would pour the water on. And as I shared in the comment um, online, they didn't just do this before they ate the first course. They did it before the entree, before the main, before the dessert, before their after-dinner after coffee. They did it all the time. And the Pharisees, therefore, were asking, why don't your disciples do this? Why aren't they obsessed with these traditions of our elders? Because, you see, the ceremonial washings were just that. They weren't scriptural law. There's nowhere in the Bible that commanded them to do this. It was the tradition of the elders. It was those unwritten rules. You've been to a place anywhere, a school, a gym, a church, where there's unwritten rules that you work out as you go along. But that's what these were. And Jesus unleashes on them. He's like, I want to undo this, this attitude. He says, you're not even treating people with respect. You're not even showing love to other people. Your hearts aren't even connected with God. And yet you're going through all these obsessive external rituals in order to get close to God. 
Isaiah is right, he says, you hypocrites. These people honour me with their lips, in verse 7, but their hearts are far from me. They give me lip service. They say the right things. They sing the right things. They look good on the outside. They've got the right paper, the right bow, the right coloured envelope. But inside, it's empty. They worship me in vain. Jesus says worship that's not pleasing to him is worship that on the outside looks good. But because the inside is not right, whatever comes out is an empty gift. It's hollow worship. What would Jesus undo? He would undo when we give the show on the outside of having things together, of having a great faith, of being a great Christian, when on the inside our hearts are very, very, very far from God, from truly worshipping God. So I want to just talk for a few moments about worship and come back to the heart before we finish up this morning. But when we talk about worship, I reckon for many of you, as it does for me, the first thing that comes to mind is music. Am I right? Talk about worship, we think about singing. That's, that's just what happens. We talk about music and song. I worship God by singing. I worship God by playing my guitar. I worship God by playing in the band. I worship God by lifting my hands, by kneeling. Something to do with music. I like this style of music. I don't like that style of music. Actually, the environment's got to be like this for me to worship. Worship should be done in a specific way. It needs to be rowdy and fun because God is joyful. No, it needs to be reverent and quiet because God is holy. Which one is right? How many of you have ever been to a place to worship, a church to worship, that's looked a little bit different like it than it did this morning? Anyone? Well, I hope most of you got the chance to worship in different environments. This week, um, I've just spent two and a bit days at a women's conference in Sydney, worshipping with 10,000 women. And a lot of the time, it was loud and rowdy and fun. But one of the days, we had 15 minutes where there was just a piano, and we stopped and we reflected. You know what? God says. What do you think God says about that? With all the different styles of worship in the world, some, some churches worship for 10 minutes some with music. Some church worship for two hours, three hours. In some places in Africa, you turn up for church at 5 p.m. and you're lucky to go home by midnight because the worship is so long and, and engaging. What's right? When we think about all the worship in the world is, is very traditional, conservative worship, expressive, charismatic worship, hymns, contemporary, which one's right? I want to tell you this morning, I hope you know, it's both and it's neither if the heart is not right. All worship is pleasing to God if our heart's connected to him. No worship is pleasing to God if our heart is in a bad condition, if the attitude of our heart is not good, if we're not connected to God. Any expression of worship honours God when our heart is connected to who he is because worship should be a reflection of the heart. I mean, think about this. Imagine my children, um, one year for Christmas, they sung a song to me. Phil taught them on the guitar, and they sung this beautiful song, and it was lovely. But imagine these days, they're old teenagers. Um, imagine if they were to come to me and say, Mum, we just want to express our love for you, and they sung me a beautiful song, a cappella. Um, imagine if they stood there and they did that. I'm like, oh, hang on, hang on. I don't really like it a cappella. There needs to be at least three different instruments. I don't want to hear about your love until you've done it in a different way. Imagine if I did that. Or imagine if they came out as little kids with, you know, saucepans and banged on them and said, I love you, mom. You're the best mom in the whole world. I wouldn't say, Shh, no, no, 
that's not holy enough, it needs to be quiet. I want there to be at least five repeats in that chorus before I actually feel like I'm worshipped. Either way, that's scary that you laughed. They can worship me, I don't want them to worship me, but they can express their love and adoration for me however they like if they're actually saying they love me and it's true from the heart by the way they live, by the way they live with others. Jesus made it clear here when he was um, quoting Isaiah 29, 13, that tradition is something external, but God's truth is internal. It's in the heart. And God wants us to give him our hearts, not our lips. The lips should be just a reflection of the heart. Think about all the things that happen in our heart. Romans 10, I think they kind of come up now, says we believe in the heart. That's where it starts. We believe in the heart. We should love from the heart. That's true love, only love that comes from the heart. We sing from the heart. We obey from the heart. We give from the heart. It's no wonder David prayed, create a clean heart in me, O God. When our heart is clean and pure before God, that's when our worship means something to him. It's not hollow. It's not in vain. It's the life that we live. Matthew 15, 19 to 20. Sorry. No frog. <laughs> what comes out of the mouth gets started in the heart. It's from the heart that we vomit up evil arguments, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, lies and cussing. That's what pollutes eating or not eating certain foods, washing or not washing your hands. That's neither here nor there. Have you thought about that? Everything comes from the heart. Evil arguments, murders, adulteries. I love how it's all combined, right? Lying, theft, murder, arguing. It's all stuff that comes from the heart that's not good. If worship isn't lip service, if it's not going to be lip service, if it's not going to be hollow, if Jesus wants to undo that worship in vain, what should it look like? How do we express our worship to God? Well, I think there's a time for coming together like we've done this morning. There's a time where sometimes when our heart's right before him and, and we feel humbled before his presence, there's, there's that action of kneeling in reverence. The Bible tells us to kneel and to worship, to bow down before him. Come, let us bow down in worship and kneel before the Lord, our maker. Again, it's not what we're actually singing or saying or doing. It's about our heart being humble before God, being overwhelmed with who he is and what he's done, that we just fall to our knees. Like Peter, who fell in repentance. Like the wise man who knelt down, bringing gifts and worshipping the Son of God act of submission and worship. Sometimes we kneel. Sometimes we lift our hands when we sing or at other times in adoration to God. It's not a weird charismatic thing. It's a Bible thing. Paul says in the New Testament, lift up holy hands to God. David said when he was in the wilderness, he says, I praise you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift my hands. I'm always fascinated by how much the culture around me, around me lifts their hands. Phil and I went to a soccer game, which we won't talk too much about, a week or so ago. And um, one stage, people were raising their hands in victory, you know, so excited. Sydney FC, we were playing really well, so I'm going to talk a bit about it. First half, Sydney FC were loud and there, and we, were, we weren't winning because there was no goals in soccer as the case, but we should have won. But of course, in the second half, in the second half, 
They're still lifting their hands. Wanderers got a goal. They also threw about 10 flares, so their hearts aren't really good. Wanderers, just so you know. Sydney FC's hearts are always pure. Um, <laughs> but Sydney, in, in Sydney FC towards the end, were raising their hands almost like in defeat, like, oh, I surrender. This is all too much. It's those actions where we raise hands. Have you risen your hand at a, at a concert? Like, this is amazing. You guys are amazing. I surrender to this music. I'm never going to be this good. And I think in worship, it's quite normal in our lives. When we're at home, sometimes I become so passionate about something when I'm praying that I'm like, oh, God, help me. Oh, God, I need you. I surrender to your power. And other times I'm excited by something that's happened. I raise my hands declaring that God is victorious and God has won in my life. There's lots of good reasons to lift our hands, but it's a reflection of what's in our heart. Sometimes we kneel before him, sometimes we lift our hands, but always, always we offer a sacrifice of praise. The writer of the Hebrews said that though Jesus, um, through Jesus, let us continually, all the time, not just when we're at church, not just when we're by our, by our beds, continually, all the time, everywhere, in all circumstances, offer to our God a sacrifice of praise. In other words, we worship him when we feel him and we worship him when he feels distant. We worship him when we're hurting. We worship him when we feel joyful. We sacrifice, we choose to worship because our worship isn't based on how we feel or the circumstances around us. That's lip service. Our worship is based on who God is. So in the middle of our pain, in the middle of our heartache, we choose not to become hard-hearted, not to become bitter, not to become resentful, but to acknowledge who God is, to daily, every single day, lay down our lives as an act of worship because worship isn't something that we do. Our heart isn't just, you know, something that's seen by all, but it's the most important part of us. So worship is who we are. Very famous verse I use regularly, Romans 12. Paul said, I urge you, not just I suggest, I urge you, please, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of who he is and what he's done, here's what I want you to do. I want you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. The way you live, let that be worship. Offer your lives holy and pleasing to God because that is true and proper worship. What would Jesus undo? I know his heart I read it over and over again in his word. He would undo vain worship, hollow worship. And he would say, just love me with your own heart. Present yourself to me and allow me to use you. That's the best worship you can ever give. Everything I do, may it be glory to God. Because worship isn't about the songs that I sing. It's not what comes off my lips, especially if my heart isn't good. We're going to sing a song Many of you would know it. It's well known. And it reminds us that worship is born out of how we live every single day. And my prayer today for myself is that my worship more and more, my life more and more will just reflect what's on my heart. It won't be an empty, amazing, beautiful gift box with nothing inside, but it will be something of substance and of meaning because I build my life on his love and allow that to live through me. So we're going to sing this song in a moment. I'm going to pray. Then we're going to sing. You can come forward if you like. But I think God today just wants to remind us of something that most of us already know. 
may our worship be pleasing in His sight. God, help us to worship You, to really worship You by the way that we live. God, help us not just to be worshippers in church, making a noise, joyful or not, in church, but help us as the church in the world to be worshippers, to show the world the love that comes from our heart. Stretch us, God. Soften our hearts, God. May we never give you an empty box, lip service. Draw our hearts close to you so that we can worship you today and every day in spirit and in truth, we pray.